Today is, is Memorial Day weekend, but we're going to start a new teaching series this weekend um, called Set Free. It's a study in the New Testament book of Galatians. The writer uh, of this letter to the Galatian church is the Apostle Paul. And Paul uses some words in the context of this book that um, maybe not all of us are on board with. We know that folks come to Redeemer from lots of different religious backgrounds, sometimes um, li very little church or no church background. So we want to just give you a couple of words each week to help explain what Paul's writing is, uh, what he's teaching in this writing. And so there will be a quiz in a couple of weeks, so pay attention. Uh, but we're going to uh, start today with two words that he uses in this week's lesson. The one word is gospel, um, and, and it refers to uh, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, the early Christian story. It's regarded as true, something of great importance, something to be, to be believed. And sometimes we read the word gospel interchangeably with the words good news. And it is good news because it is about salvation. It's about God's kingdom. The second word uh, today may be less familiar, it's Judaizers, a term used for a group of first century Christians who insisted that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, had to convert to Judaism in order to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And among other things, they insisted that these Christians now follow Old Testament laws, including Jewish feast days and dietary provisions and circumcision and things like that. Now, you'll, these are Jewish Christians uh, who are taking a kind of a step back, dragging uh, these non-Jewish Christians along with them back into the Old Testament law. So we'll hear both of those terms uh, used in today's lesson. Now the reason Paul is writing this series of letters to the Galatian church is because of these Judaizers who were holding uh, to some of the old Jewish practices and trying to to take away the freedom that was found in the gospel, to take it back to a faith that was based on legalism uh, rather than, and, and works rather than faith alone in Christ. So Paul's refuting their teaching. Now I'm gonna encourage you to read this book of Galatians um, and maybe several times, bring your Bible to church, do some study on your own. This is a great little book, it's only six chapters long, it'll take you about a half hour to read it. And I encourage you maybe even read it once a week through the summer months because it will change your life. It's a great little book, lots of relevant things to say even to our culture today. So let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? Gracious God, we who are your forgiven people, turn to you this morning for healing, for comfort. We're here to worship you. Grant us your grace to hear the promises of our faith, to hear the hope that, uh, that your word speaks of, spoken by at first from a former time and offered still to meet our needs today. We want the courage to trust you, to follow you wherever you may lead us. So engage us this morning through the music, through the word, through all that we do and say. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Whenever I start a new teaching series, especially an extended one of a book of the Bible, I wonder if it might not be useful uh, to know why this book was written and, and why we've chosen that now. After all, there are 65 other books in the Bible. 
So why study the book of Galatians? Well, for me, the answer is simple. In the last several years, God has blessed our congregation with a lot of new people from a lot of different religious backgrounds. And whenever that happens, there's always a danger that people who want, who want to be part of the church uh, uh, might not know what they're joining or what the church really believes. So as your pastor, I'm deeply concerned that all people who worship here be firmly grounded in some of the basic truths of the Christian faith. And there is no truth more basic than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to know how God forgives sinners like us and turns our lives in a new direction. And we need to make sure that we are included in those who have been truly set free to live life differently than the world around us. We need to know this for ourselves. We need to know it so we can share that good news with other people people. And that's where the book of Galatians comes in. In short, it's only six brief chapters. You can easily read it in about a half hour or so, but do not be deceived by its size. Galatians is, a, is spiritual dynamite. It is a dangerous book, so I invite you to read it at your own risk. In an age of watered-down theology, uh, distortions of the Word of God are commonplace, but the book of Galatians stands out like Mount Everest, to, the point, uh, to point, us, uh, point the way to a true and living message of God's grace. Now it's about freedom through the grace of God and how every one of us can live a new life not in bondage to the desires of the flesh or even to rules and regulations about following Christ, but there is genuine freedom possible for mind, body, and spirit through the power of God. Martin Luther, the German priest and professor of theology in the mid-1500s, read this book and an explosion went off in his heart, we are told, that led to the Protestant Reformation. He strongly disputed the claims of the Catholic Church that forgiveness of sins could be purchased with money, and instead he taught that our salvation is not earned by good deeds, but it is received only as a free gift through our faith in Jesus Christ. More than anything else, Galatians is a book about freedom. It answers the question, how can I be truly free? Free from guilt, free from fear, free from doubt, free from sin, free from always trying and never quite making it. You know, when the world looks at this question, it offers, I think, two contradictory answers. Some people think that freedom comes from obeying the rules. Do good, try harder, go to church, be baptized, give your money, do what the pastor tells you to do, light a candle, say your prayers, meditate, the list is endless. Because the human mind is endlessly creative in ways that it tries to please God, a God that it cannot see or sometimes understand. But rule keeping always fails in the end because we can never be quite sure that we've done enough. If one prayer is enough, then why not two? How many candles should I light? We can never be absolutely certain. I've often spoken to people at the time of a loved one's death who express their hope that their loved one has gone to heaven, even when that person was a believer and had definitely put their faith in Jesus Christ. But rule keepers, you see, can never quite feel the assurance of heaven because they can't be sure they've done enough to earn their salvation. On the other extreme are those who say that freedom comes by throwing all the rules aside. Do what you want, have a blast, you only go around once. There are no rules. If it feels good, just do it. 
But in the end, self-indulgence doesn't satisfy either. You end up either you end up exchanging one form of slavery for another. We drink and we end up with a hangover. We gamble and we lose our money. We sleep around and even if we don't get some strange disease, we wake up the next morning with a guilty conscience and a hole in our heart. We end up like Solomon who had it all, who tried it all, and concluded with a cry of desperation in Ecclesiastes chapter two, I hated, I hated life. Because rules can't save us and we won't be happy if we ignore all the rules either. So, uh, but if legalism, which is trying to find happiness by keeping the rules doesn't work, and hedonism, the pure pursuit of pleasure, regardless of the rules doesn't work, where can we find true freedom in this life? Galatians offers us a simple but compelling answer. Freedom comes not from rules or the lack of rules, but in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only true freedom is the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And the Apostle Paul said, those whom Christ sets free are free indeed. That's why this little book is so powerful. It points us in a revolutionary direction and invites us to discover the meaning of life itself. Are you interested in, in real peace? Are you interested in lasting freedom? Are you interested in the, in the power to live a new life? And if the answer to any of those questions is yes, then stay tuned over the next few weeks because we're going to follow the Apostle Paul on this journey we're calling Set Free. Today's uh, message covers the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 1. It breaks down neatly into two parts. The first five verses are part of the salutation, and the uh, verses 6 through 10, the denunciation. So let's jump in and see what we find. Whenever an unexpected letter arrives uh, in, in my mailbox, I want to know three things about it. Who's it from? Who's it to? And what's it all about? The first five verses answer all three questions about this letter. Verses one and two. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. Now these verses tell us that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul and the, and the word apostle means one who is sent with delegated authority. In this case, it means that Paul was not appointed or elected by people. He was not even chosen by some church council. His calling and his authority came directly from God. He speaks with God's authority. We also learn that this letter is addressed to the churches in Galatia. The region of Galatia was in what we would call today modern-day Turkey, and it was a Gentile region, which meant that these churches were not primarily Jewish. This point will become, uh, be very important as we attempt to understand what Paul wrote. See, on his first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul, accompanied by a man by the name of Barnabas, preached the gospel and established local churches in Galatia, this area in modern-day Turkey, and he taught these new believers the basics of the Christian faith. He appointed some leaders, and then he moved on to the next town to repeat the process. He established a number of new churches that way. 
Sometimes after he left, a group of, sometime after he left this particular church, a group of Jewish Christian converts from Jerusalem came to the region claiming to speak for the original apostles in Jerusalem. Over time, they spread rumors that Paul was not a real apostle, that he had, was not preaching a full or complete gospel. And in particular, they told these young Galatian believers that they needed to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, and they, that came as a disconcerting shock, since circumcision was essentially a Jewish practice connected with the Old Testament law. Now, they evidently also attempted to get the Galatians to mix their Christian faith with part of the Old Testament law, and these false teachers must have been very persuasive. It's clear from the letter that the Galatians were at best badly confused, and at worst, they were almost completely seduced by these so-called Jewish Christian converts who were, in fact, perverting the gospel they claimed to believe. Now, to Paul, this was no small issue. He preached a Jesus-only gospel. Another term for that is justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And he taught that the way of salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Judaizers taught a Jesus plus religion. They didn't deny that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't deny his death and resurrection. They didn't preach against believing in him. But in essence, what they said was Christ started something, but you need to finish it. You must finish the work, the unfinished work of Christ. And in Paul's mind, this was nothing less than an attack on the gospel itself. If the Judaizers prevailed, their work would, uh, Paul's work would have been in vain. The doctrine of grace itself was at stake in this controversy, and it comes down to a simple question. Are we put right in a right relationship with God by believing or by achieving? Paul said, we're put right with God by believing. The Judaizers said, by achieving, by adding works to our faith. When Paul heard about the inroads made by these false teachers, he sat down and he wrote this letter, and in many ways it's an emergency letter. The tone is personal, it's passionate. More than any other letter, he pours out his heart and his soul as he pleads for these young converts to not be led astray by the clever, charismatic Judaizers and their dangerous and deceptive heresy. Look at verses 3 through 5. May God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul is so concerned that he puts a statement of the gospel right here at the beginning of this letter. These verses tell us that the gospel is centered in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we speak of the gospel as if it, uh, it's about what happens to us. I, ex I can accept Christ and be saved, a personal relationship with Christ, but as good as those things are, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not about us. It's about what Christ has done, God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is about the death and resurrection of our Lord. These were real space-time events that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to earth on a divine rescue mission to redeem us from our sin, to deliver us from the power of evil, and he came by the will of God, and his death and resurrection brought great glory to his heavenly Father. And through him, all the benefits of the gospel now flow freely to anyone who believes in him. This is the truth 
that the Galatians were in danger of deserting. See, Galatians is among Paul's letters, uh, is unique among Paul's letters because it's the only one that does not contain a word of thanksgiving for the readers. In almost every other case, it takes a verse or two or three to give thanks to the readers who are reading this letter, but not this time. He's so concerned for their spiritual welfare that Paul jumps right into the heart of the letter. Look at verses six and seven. I'm shocked, he says, that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Paul's astonishment comes from the fact that these very believers he had discipled were such easy prey for some false teachers. Had he not taught the truth? Had they not gladly listened? Did they not welcome the liberating truth of the gospel into their hearts? How could they be so quickly deceived? See, the word deserting is a military term that refers to a traitor, one who leaves the army of his own country and goes sometimes to work for the enemy. Now, in this case, it meant that they were leaving the gospel of grace for a gospel of salvation by works. And that gospel, Paul says, is no gospel at all. It's human-centered. It's a human-centered attempt to attain salvation. It appeals to our natural pride and desire to think that somehow we've contributed to our own deliverance, to our own redemption. Someone commented that grace is counterintuitive in that it goes against the grain of what we naturally think. Grace teaches us that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation and that all of our efforts to attain salvation by doing good works actually moves us in the wrong direction. Until we're willing to give up that we-try-harder attitude and simply ask for God's mercy, we will never be made right with God. This insight is at the heart of the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. First, you must admit that you're powerless to change and that you are in the grip of something that will ultimately destroy you. But alcohol is only one manifestation of the deeper sin problem that plagues all of humanity because sin has, its in it, has us in its grip. And no amount of religious activity, no amount of self-reformation can save us from ourselves. We are doomed unless Christ redeems us from our sin. That's the shocking truth that many people today cannot accept. That's why grace is counterintuitive. It forces us to admit what we don't want to admit, that we are in trouble and there is nothing we can do for ourselves. These false teachers tapped into that natural desire that we all feel and make us want to contribute something to our own salvation. And in the case of the Galatian believers, it was circumcision. It was works of the law. For us, it may be something equally good, things like baptism or church attendance or the fact that we give some money to the church or helping the poor or reaching out to the hurting. You see, this, this, this whole false doctrine is insidious. It takes something that's good and it attaches that good thing to the finished work of Christ as a condition of salvation. Thus, something actually uh, good actually becomes that which can lead us away from God. Now, it's clear that Paul will not tolerate this false 
teaching in the church. He knows that if we tolerate false teaching about the gospel, we are actually deserting Christ himself. This is no small issue with Paul. It's either salvation by Christ alone or there, no, there is no salvation at all. God doesn't have a plan B for those who don't want to be saved by faith in Christ alone. Look at verses 8 and 9. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcome, let that person be cursed. These are some of the harshest words in the New Testament. The key phrase here, let them be eternally condemned. Let that person be cursed. Some translations have it um, accursed. The Greek word here is anathema, which means, it's a Hebrew term that means devoted to destruction. It basically means to reject something that's completely, uh, to reject something completely and to condemn it to destruction. And here Paul's declaring that anyone, himself included, who preaches any other gospel than the gospel of free grace should be eternally condemned. In other words, he's saying, let them all go to hell. Now, in our culture today, we love to talk about tolerance. We love to talk about diversity, about pluralism, kind of a secular trinity. We don't hear much about going to hell, do we? And the notion that a person should declare that someone is deserving of hell, well, that you have to be a narrow-minded bigot to say something like that. But here in Galatians chapter 1, these words are coming from a man who's writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And what Paul says is God-inspired. And here he's giving us a clear rejection of pluralism. The notion that all religions are equal. And in the end, we're all going to the same place. These verses may not be popular but they are as true today as when the apostle wrote them. Look at verse 10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Now, this verse adds a very key point to the the whole text today. Paul wrote as he did because he cared deeply for the eternal welfare of these new converts. He cared so much that he dared to tell them the hard truth about the Judaizers and their false gospel. It would have been easy to overlook it. It would have been easy to just give them a mild warning, but he doesn't take the easy way out. He risks everything, including their friendship, in order to save them from eternal destruction because he cares more about the approval of God than he does people. He speaks the truth, and we should be as bold Let me wrap up today's message with four truths that I think uh, we need to hear. First, even well-taught Christians may unknowingly follow false doctrine. We may be deceived even though we are well-taught and well-grounded, take nothing for granted. You know, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light for this very purpose. So be on guard for your friends, for new believers around you. If Paul's converts could be seduced, The same thing can surely happen to the people we know, even sometimes Christ followers like us. Secondly, standing for the truth demands that we expose error when great issues are at stake. And I want to point out the phrase great issues. Not every issue is a great issue. I think there's room for disagreement in the church on maybe the timing of Christ coming back, maybe the proper mode of baptism. Certainly, we have fellowship with believers from many different backgrounds and denominations, and sometimes 
We have disagreements on the finer points of things like worship styles and methods of outreach and whether or not to use the hymnal or PowerPoint songs, putting songs in PowerPoint on the screen. Those are matters of personal preference. They're not big, great biblical issues, but that's a lot of what the church argues about, those little things. But there are some great issues that go to the heart of our Christian faith, and none is more fundamental than the doctrine of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When that doctrine is denied or challenged or when it's watered down, it's time to stand up and say something. It's a hill worth fighting for, a hill worth dying on if necessary, and Paul certainly felt that way. Here's number three. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is telling the truth. This is, there's a, this is an obvious truth that perhaps needs to be repeated. Jesus warned people about people who would work miracles and claim to be his followers, but he said on the day of judgment, I'll say, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. Just so we don't take that too lightly, consider the thought that those words might one day be directed to us. Make sure of your own salvation. Before you point the finger at somebody else, Make sure you are not among those who claim to be something that they're not. And then number four, God still pronounces a curse on anyone who adds anything to the simplicity of the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. And again, this is not a popular statement in our culture today, but it's exactly what Paul is teaching. Anyone who preaches any other gospel than the gospel of the New Testament, he says, is under a curse from God. And believe me, that's not a good place to be. There's only one gospel. There's only one savior. There's only one way of salvation. Paul's saying, let let those who preach that the Bible is a myth, let those who declare that Jesus is only one among many gods, let those who say that all religions are equal, let those who proclaim a do-it-yourself spirituality, let those who deny that it's a narrow road to heaven, let those who add to the gospel things like good works and worship attendance and giving and Sunday school and praying and deeds of kindness and giving to the poor or anything else be cursed. Let those who say that Jesus never lived and he never claimed to be God, let those who say that there is no such thing as absolute truth, let those who claim that tolerance is more important than truth, let those who mock the followers of Jesus, let those who want Christianity to be without a cross, let those who prefer culture to Christ, let those who deny heaven and laugh at hell, let those who preach that sin is a myth and the cross was a mistake, let those who say that's just your opinion when told that Christ is the way to God, let them be cursed. If they will not repent, they will not turn from the evil teaching, then let them be eternally condemned. That's Paul's words. That's the word of God through the apostle Paul and God's judgment on false teachers. So where does all that leave us? Well, one thing is clear in this letter to the Galatian church, and that is our relationship to Jesus Christ is really all that matters. Ultimately, nothing else in life matters as much. We must run to Jesus because he is our only hope of salvation. God is satisfied with what his son did on the cross. The question for us is, are we satisfied with Jesus? Is Jesus enough for us? Or do we think that we need to somehow add something of our own to what he accomplished in his death and resurrection? I urge you today to humble yourself, and if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to turn from your pride and bow before the one today who loved you enough to die for you. Trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
But for all of us, this passage calls us to stand strong for the gospel. And I realize that we live in an age when anyone who expresses a strong opinion is liable to be ridiculed and called narrow-minded or worse. So be it. So let us be as narrow as God's truth and as broad as God's grace. I thank God for this emergency letter because it reveals the heart of the gospel. It calls us to be faithful to the truth revealed in the New Testament and thank God for the finished work of Christ. It is truly finished. So let us join together with true believers everywhere in declaring the free grace of God today. This is the message that the world needs to hear desperately. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God, that he came to earth as a man in order to live the sinless life that we cannot live and that he died in our place so that we would not have to pay the penalty we deserve. God, we confess our past life of sin, living for ourselves, not obeying God, and we admit we're ready to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So we ask you to come into our heart this day, take up residence, and begin living your life through us. We pray it in Christ's name.